this is Jackie Miller, your host of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. November is Family Court Awareness Month. I have a very special guest for this episode, Annie Kenny. Annie and her children suffered through the family court system, which basically rendered Annie helpless while continuing to expose her children to an abusive father. Annie learned the hard way that abusive parents' rights take priority over child safety in the family court system. Annie worked hard to change laws in her own state of Maryland and has gone on to become board president of Family Court Awareness Month. Join us as Annie walks us through her journey and discusses how we can all pitch in to change family court for the better. Hello, Annie Kenny. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I am so thankful that you've joined me today because we really need to raise awareness about family court and you are the expert. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You know, we're going to talk about misconceptions in the public, but I think that people that are even in the court system, family court system now are still in shock at what goes on. And so we need to start from the inside out and talk about this. So we are going to cover all of that. I want to tell people really quick, though, some of the accolades about you, because, you know, I need people to know that you are a child safety advocate on local family violence coordinating council, um, a collaborator on legislative reform with state policymakers, member of the National Safe Parents Organization, a contributor to the Washington Post. You are also a certified high conflict divorce coach and certified victim advocate, a panelist on the Allen versus Farrow documentary series. And I'm sure you will agree with me. People need to see this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very powerful wake up call for people who, who seem to think there's more to the story than they're getting. I think that's a really common misconception. That's a um, great way to say it. Yeah. And to see things laid out so clearly and still ignored or spun in the wrong direction is pretty shocking. That's right. I mean, every member of society should see it. This is not just yeah. people who are in the family court system. And so if you haven't seen it, basically, this is a gross example of how alienation basically is used against abuse victims and and protective parents. A well-respected woman too. I mean, let's be honest. This is a woman who was well-respected, well-spoken, had her own credibility, you would have thought, and a child's own words. And so I think it's just people tend to think that there's more to the story, that there's a reason why somebody isn't believed, that the information isn't so obvious. And I think this is just a really good example of how blatant, you know, the ignoring is. It is. And, you know, it's the everyday abuser on the street not Mm -hmm. only gets away with this behavior in court, but then it's obviously even more sad when you have this actor, Woody Allen, who is, you know, so respected in his community and how to be praised and validated and continue. And somehow that person has become the victim. That person is the one who's getting support. Um, And the family that's left behind that really is crumbling is getting no support and the burden on them to try to keep maintaining contact and get through the legal process. And it's all just, it's just so much. It's so much. And then obviously the child victim, which is the super sad part of the story, but you're right. Watching the abuser try to become the victim, you know, not only in the public eye, but just in, in the courtroom is just, it, it'll make your stomach turn. I'm sorry, but everyone needs to see it. So they understand yeah. the reality. Yeah. 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 
So you were a panelist on that series. And then also, last but not least, the board president of Family Court Awareness Month. So thank you again for being here. Yes, thank you. If you don't mind, Annie, you have had a really tough road when it comes to what you experienced in your own marriage and with your children and with abuse. And would you mind sharing with us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, so in 2017, I learned that my husband was abusing our oldest daughter. Um, he was indicted on felony child sex abuse charges, and he was convicted and became a tier three registered sex offender for life. I started the divorce proceedings around the same time, but he was already convicted and already on the sex offender registry before I stepped foot in family court for the first time. And so I really thought that everything was just going to be okay. Like it was all going to common sense. Uh, we had two younger daughters and I was wanting to keep the right boundaries up for them. And I still ended up in family court for four years trying to keep these two girls protected from him. Not even have contact cut off completely, just be safe, if you will, whatever, you know, whatever realm that is, because there's so much pressure to try to continue contact and facilitate the relationship and all of that nonsense. Meanwhile, I have this third daughter who's watching all of this stuff happen happen and seeing it all. And, you know, there's no disputing what her experiences were and that he's been convicted of those experiences. But even then, as, as I was going through that process, um, I started realizing that the laws weren't really supporting the safety of children. And I came across um, a few examples that I was trying to navigate on my own. And I started working to change the laws in my home state of Maryland. And um, last year, we got a judicial training bill passed where judges are required to undergo training for the specific topics that come up in family court cases that involve child abuse or domestic violence. And this year, I was able to get a bill passed that has um, stronger restrictions and penalties for offenders that are convicted of sexual abuse of a minor. But one thing I always like to, to point out as far as when I say that I've only been in family, I was in family court for four years, even after he was convicted. The only reason I'm not actively in family court right now is because he's incarcerated for abusing someone else's children now. So I'm on pause. You know, I, I have a few more years, hopefully of quiet, and then I will likely be right back in family court again. And family court never protected my children. I still had an active court order that I was defying when he was arrested for his new charges. So family court never protected your children. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they are safe today is because he is in jail for yep. or prison for hurting someone else's children was way more serious than hurting his own. And that was the point I wanted to make, because I know in our world, we hear that example a lot. If if the neighbor had sexually yep. assaulted your children, right, they would go to jail. If their own father yes. does, the family court repeatedly gives them chances to have access to their children over and over yes. and over as the protective parent tries to save them. And then Absolutely. often we can get to this later too. There are studies now that show the protective parent often gets penalized or even having custody yeah. taken away. Not only do they does the family court try to continue the access or give multiple chances, 
what statutes a, a crime in a situation that isn't a family member or a child and a parent is considered not a crime if it's your own child. They look at it in a different realm of, um, you know, behavior that might have been just roughhousing too much or, you know, something along those lines. They they minimize it. But again, if you were to be assaulted by a stranger the way that some of these predators get away with interacting with their children, it, it would be a crime and that person would go to jail. Yeah, absolutely. But in the family court system, not only is it the so many chances, but a lot of times the criminal angle of it is completely disregarded. It's considered not a crime. And if I'm not mistaken, you had to find out the hard way that he was not only violating court orders, but your daughters were in more serious danger during some visits. Yes. So, and this is what led to me trying to change the, the laws in the state. So what ended up happening is he was granted supposedly supervised visitation every other weekend at his mother's house. And after about a year of those visits, my, my middle daughter's mental health had been declining significantly and um, she was unable to sleep and was extremely stressed. Her therapist learned that um, she and her younger sister were being left alone in spaces with their father. They were even sleeping alone in a room with their father. And so they called me in and they told me and they filed CPS reports because in their mind, these were endangered children and this was child abuse. And so I, I had to go through the whole process again of the CPS interviews only to be told that there was no issue. The kids weren't reporting abuse at that time. And they had confirmed that they were sleeping alone together, but it didn't actually constitute a crime. And the the police officer and the social worker, I mean, they really talked to me like I was just this angry mother. I mean, I was angry at that moment. I thought they were going to step. I thought he was going to be arrested. I was like, how in the world is he a registered sex offender and he's sleeping alone with kids and he's not allowed to have unsupervised act? Like, I just blew my mind. But they Blows were mine. so dismissive. And I realized while I was talking to them there that I was the crazy one. Mm -hmm. They were looking at me like I'm the problem. They told me to go back to family court and get a better court order. I said, I have a good court order. He's not following it. You know, I, I realized it wasn't against the law. Nobody was going to do anything. And so I stopped sending my children. I started fighting contempt charges and I started trying to change the laws. And it was just like a desperation. It was like, yeah. how is this? At first, I assumed, yeah, obviously people will care, um, except they still didn't care. After I started trying to change that one law, it took five years, five years. So, I mean, it's people like to look the other way and it's, they look at it as a domestic issue when violence is violence and it shouldn't matter whether or not it's happening within a family or out in public. It, to me, it's it's even sadder and more complicated when it's a family unit because the entire household is disruptive. The income is disruptive, the day-to-day -day life, everything. And yet people just look the other way. Yeah. And the louder you get trying to defend your children and ask for help, the more they all look at you like you're crazy. Well, and that's just it. And it, it was shocking to me the more I, you know, got into this world and was studying it. And then, you know, as we know, studies were coming out that society is so willing to go woman, yep. crazy woman, so much easier even for a judge who is making decisions on a child's welfare and safety to just jump to the conclusion that mom's right. crazy. And because it's so much easier than actually investigating the disgusting truth that their especially when it's the them. when it's the sexual abuse, people will believe anything other than that. It's impossible to get them there. You can have a child verbalizing exactly what's going on and they'll still try to say, well, that protective parent is 
is coaching them, yeah. teaching them to say that. So then not only do you have these kids who are being exposed to continued abuse, they're being told that their own experiences aren't real or don't matter. Um, and I mean, there's just so much damage that, that goes on for so long. It's horrible. There's so much damage. And to me, the gut-wrenching oh, position that you were put in and many mothers is then you have your children looking at you as the protective parent, basically like, mommy, help me. And you are being told by your own attorney and you're seeing evidence that the harder you try, the bigger chance you have of have your children taken away. And so you're, I can't even imagine, Annie, like looking at your children and thinking, if I try to help yeah. you anymore in the family court system, you will then, your father will have more access to you. And that's, you the relationships are so, um, I mean, they, they really get destroyed. I'm very fortunate that my youngest daughter was very young through most of this process and appears to be relatively unscathed. My middle daughter was in the midst of all of it. And she's angry with me. I mean, she has extreme psychiatric uh, struggles right now, multiple hospitalizations um, this, this year alone. And our relationship is not what it was or what it even should be. And I think she just feels, she feels betrayed by me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lied to her a lot too. You know, I told her that this would be okay, or this was fine, or I, I, I didn't tell her a lot of things because there's so much pressure on not doing it. And you're told if you tell the truth that you're going to get in trouble, you know, you're causing the problem, but then your child's looking to you to be the protector, to be the one telling them what's going on. And um, I really think that the way I had to handle a lot of it has impacted my relationship with that, that specific daughter. Yeah. I'm sure it's like, thanks to family court, this mm -hmm. poor child has suffered yeah. so yeah, many And I'm things. one of the lucky ones. Like right now, I know I am one of the lucky ones because I'm not handing my children over to the abuser and I'm not having to have them away from me. You know, some women actually lose or some protective parents actually lose all of their custodial time because they, they go too hard. So I know that I'm one of the lucky ones, but the impact that's left behind and what could still happen again in a few years is just massive. It consumes the, your whole life. Well, and like you said, okay, so if he was convicted and um, sentenced to 10 years in prison, you, what you're saying is the family court system in the United States will then give him many more chances to have access to his children as soon as yes. he's released. I cannot, there's no recourse for me to legally terminate his parental rights right now even though he has multiple sex um, offenses and involving children, multiple children at this point, I can't terminate his rights. I have a no contact order that he consented to um, in the midst of all of his criminal you know, court activity where it was not advisable for him to continue going to trial in family court. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have that. It's a temporary thing. I'm sure at some point when he's out, he will want to change that. And I just, you're just waiting. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that he will be given some level of, of access if that yeah. day comes. And just to be redundant, but I can't help myself. It is like, it, he'll be a registered sex offender that will be listed, I'm sure, on a, on a registry that people yep. can access and see where he's leaving so they can actively protect yes. their children from him and keep them from him. But the family court system will let him have access to his own yes. children. Just you will legally be allowed to keep your children away from him. I will not be legally allowed to keep my children away from him, even though they consider him such a danger to society that 
his address, his picture, his car, his work address, everything about him needs to be made public forever. He's on the, the registry that doesn't go away. Um, but yeah, he will have legal rights to my middle daughter, I think will hopefully have aged out or be very close to that. And the little one, she won't even remember him. Yeah. You know, she I just... was she was two when we uh, stopped living in the same house and she was four the last time she saw him on a supervised visit and she's she's nine now and we expect when she's in middle school is likely when everything will start again. Can we talk really quick about the study that was done? Because when I, I tell people this stuff, they say, Jack, this can't be right, Jackie. This can't, people who think that I'm very smart and are very happy about what I do now with my, you know, my career and doing my podcast and getting the word out there. And they know that I've really done my homework. I will, I will quote these statistics to them and they will look me in the eyes and say, this can't be true. So finally, a study was done by Susan Meyer, who is a professor of law at George Washington Law University in Washington, D.C. And what can you tell us about the findings of that study? So the findings were that, um, and, and this one focused more on mothers versus fathers. In these True. instances, it was the mothers that were the protective parents. Thank you um, for pointing that out. And yeah. so what, what they found was that mothers were rarely believed when bringing forth any amount of, of abuse, whether it was just physical or sexual abuse. And that they were twice as likely to lose their custody, to lose their access to their children when the father responded with an allegation of parental alienation. When the situation was a mother alleging child sexual abuse and the father you know, had the rebuttal of parental alienation, there's not a single case where the mother's allegation was believed. So it's this technique of claiming that the mother is intentionally putting forth negative information just with the intent of removing the father from the child's life is so powerful that it is totally eradicating documented abuse. Sometimes CPS has actually substantiated it. Sometimes there's interviews with the children saying that it occurred. You know, it's not just situations where it's just a mother's word versus a father's word. You know, and it's it's so shocking to me because I will be honest, as somebody who has um, been an only parent for many, many years, I would have loved the opportunity to have a safe parent to call sometimes or have the kids go visit sometimes. Um, and the idea that women would just intentionally harm their children, spend a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars and five years in court just because they want to hurt this other person. I mean, I, I don't understand how anybody's brain is connecting the dots in that way. And to me, it is such a, a disgusting bias that that is more believable than a child saying they're being you know abused. Absolutely. And so I just want to really boil this down into layman's terms. Father sexually abusing kids, times very substantiated to the point of child protective services, you know, has ruled that, yes, they, you know, Which found that in itself almost never happens. Most CPS claims come back as unfounded because of the threshold that has to be met. So let's be honest, but if, if you actually get a substantiated uh, CPS investigation, then you're way ahead of the game, supposedly. Then what they found was pretty awful for yeah. them to actually say that they substantiate it. So, so again, layman's terms, dad's sexually abusing kids. Mom says, please, please, help me family court. Um, I, I need custody because I need to keep my kids safe. Dad says she's brainwashing the kids. I would never in court goes, Oh mom. Yeah. This is and then 
not only does mom not win in or succeed in protecting her children, mom is penalized. Mom loses her access to the children. Sometimes she still has, you know, weekend visits or something like that, but she loses her ability to have legal custody. She loses her ability to put these children in therapy. So here's the, you know, you have these children who are being abused, who are telling people they're being abused. They're not even allowed to go to therapy because the father has convinced the whole family court system that the therapy is just a trick to try to, you know, get more people on board. So then the trained professionals, the therapists who believe that the abuse has happened, somehow they're told that it never happened either. And it's like, I don't understand. There's no professional coming in that is better trained than the professionals that are backing the abuse. It's a lawyer and, you know, an abusive parent. And then you have, they are more qualified. Then you have judicial officers who have never been trained on domestic violence or abuse making these rulings and they have never been trained. And then you have you, poor mom, Annie Kenny, going through this situation and you have to fight tooth and nail to pass a law yeah. to get judges trained. trained. Yeah. So one of the, the most shocking things is in, when I first started all of this in my actual personal case, you know, you're so shell shocked. There's like this numbness and confusion and you don't know what's supposed to be happening. And you really believe the professionals around you that this is going to be okay. And this is what you have to do. And they guide you and they tell you. And it was very um, shocking to realize that that they were looking more at what was fair to him, the convicted registered sex offender, than on what would make sense for the kids or even me. Uh, you know, I, I was granted sole legal custody, thank goodness, but I was expected to be communicative with him over everything, which then he used to abuse and send, you know, 20 messages a day demanding information. And, and I was so anxious about losing my sole legal custody. You know, they tell you, you can't abuse that power. You've got to keep dad informed and blah, 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 all this stuff. And so it's just, it was really shocking to, to realize that they didn't know what was going on. And they were making kind of like these basic unilateral decisions over and over again, like across the board. And um, I was really unprepared for that. I should have done a lot more work early on. That's why I work with protective parents now in all of the legwork because they're making the same mistake. They think the system is is built to understand and follow guidelines and that there will be some sort of protection and things will go in the right direction, but there's just so much work that you have to do. And then yes, basically judges are not trained. They don't have to be trained either is the problem. You know, it's not necessarily their fault. I actually think the judge that I had was a very nice older gentleman. He was kind to me. He was respectful. Um, But there was a lot of things that just weren't on his radar. And, um, you know, the idea that one week a judge can be sitting in traffic court and then the next week they can be thrown into family court on these really, really tough cases. Um, So, yeah. So in Maryland um, now, any cases that involve allegations of domestic violence or child abuse require a specially trained judge. Um, And there's various topics that they have to be trained on, things like coercive control, domestic violence, um, grooming for sexual um, abuse, um, things like ACEs and uh, child brain development and the long-term effects of trauma, you know, like really understand what will happen to a child if you make the wrong call here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's really important. And not many states 
have that right no. now. Maryland was the first. I don't know if anybody's done it this year. Um, we're working on it in California and other locations. Um, right. Oh, I think Colorado finally did it too. But yeah, it's it's a very few and far between situation right now. But you're having judges having to make these decisions. And it's not all about corruption. You know, you hear people at like the protests and stuff sure. acting like it's all, but some of it is just a lack of knowledge or understanding. Yeah. And right. they're just trying to get through it quickly without really understanding what it all means. Exactly. And you're right. You know, some headway has been made in California. You know, there, there were coercive control laws passed, but then they had to water down that bill and take out the training yep. of judicial professionals to get it passed, yes. which is, uh, uh, again, a whole other podcast that I'm working on, actually. But hence the existence now of Family Court Awareness Month, because, you know, it starts here. We have to have these conversations. We have to start educating people. People can get involved, and that's what Family Court Awareness Month is for. And and basically, I also, again, want to boil down what you were just saying, that the mission is basically to acknowledge that parental rights take precedent over children's protection and rights in every aspect of family court, pretty much. And so it's like, that's where we have to try to make changes is how do we protect yeah. our children instead of just saying, it's a father, it's a mother. It doesn't matter if they abuse, they still get access to their kid. Right. Parental rights, parental rights, parental rights win. It is. It's such a it's such a focus on that. Um, and really, you know, you hear about 50-50. There's actual laws to talk about the percentage of time that each parent should have with a child. That doesn't make any sense to me because what in the world is happening in this house with this family, because let's be honest, when you have two healthy parents, they're figuring it out outside of court. They are not spending two years or three years and hundreds of thousands of dollars having somebody else make the decision. So if they're in court fighting for this, something's wrong. Usually it's one abusive person, could be two. It doesn't matter. Something is wrong. And why in the world would there be this presumption that here is the amount of time that each person should have with the child? Child's not the car, not a house. There's not, this is not an asset to be divided. This is a human being whose entire life mm -hmm. is going to depend on these decisions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the family court awareness month, you know, there's really some big, big nationwide legislative pushes going on and a lot of big things happening. I'm really trying to get the conversation in the smaller communities, okay. in the places where it, this is what's going on. This is, you know, it's your county that your court case is in and nobody understands what's going on there. So getting people in front of their county commissioners and getting people in front of the mayor and the local officials and just getting the conversation everywhere, because that's where the victims are left. Yeah. They're in this local community where nobody's talking about it. Nobody yeah. knows anything and they're not connected to anybody to help them or support them. And the change really needs to come in those areas. And, you know, the bigger laws, if you get them passed, that'll work its way down. But right. um, there's just such an isolation to the the protective parents navigating these scenarios. And yeah. um, I'm really, we're, we're trying to get to be a commonplace conversation that sure. this is real stuff happening. Because that's the thing, people, like you said, they all think that it's not that big of a deal. They must be missing something. It's not, or it's not happening there. Right. People like to think of a news story as something far, far away from them that couldn't happen right there. Right. But what if right. you knew it was the kid that's in class with your kid? Absolutely. And and so for that reason, just as you mentioned, there definitely has to be a grassroots component to it. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing I love about Family Court Awareness Month. So for those of you that don't know, uh, many people that are listening to this podcast already know Tina Swithin and One Mom's Battle. But if you don't, go to One Mom's Battle. 
um, and her website there, but also familycourtawarenessmonth.org, what it also does is it allows people to get involved in making a change on so many different levels. And so one of those things is having a proclamation made by your city or even county or even state, uh, but you could do it at a very small level. Would you talk a little bit about how proclamations work? Yes. So basically, Tina, just a couple of years ago, decided that November was going to be Family Court Awareness Month. I mean, that's the type of uh, advocate she is. She's the pioneer who has big dreams and makes them happen. And so she created Family Court Awareness Month. And now what we've been doing is having individual advocates request a proclamation for their jurisdiction, which is really something that's that's easy to do. And it's quite commonly granted. Um, it happens a lot. So if you go to your local county or your local city government website, a lot of times there's even a button or an email address to send proclamation requests to. Awesome. You can um, get the exact language off of the Family Court Awareness website and literally just copy and paste it and submit it and ask your local jurisdiction to proclaim November as Family Court Awareness Month. A lot of times they say yes. Um, and then sometimes they'll even ask if you want to come receive it in person. And then there's an opportunity to connect with a few people in, in person and maybe say a few words. You don't have to if you don't want to. Um, but that's the type of stuff that we can really, really help with if you want to go to the website or you can email me at Annie at FamilyCourtAwarenessMonth.org. You know, I one of the things that I'm really noticing with this movement is that the the people who've gone through it have a totally different understanding than people on the outside. The people on the outside, they just really can't. Even if they care about the issue, there's only so much um, information they can really understand about it. So the change is going to come from the people who've gone through it. And as many people who are currently going through it know, when you're in it, you can't necessarily do anything. You're trying to keep your head above water. You're just trying to get by. Sometimes you're actually told you may not speak publicly about your case. Even if you're not told that, you're being told that you might anger some of the professionals involved in your case. And so there's like this encouragement to be silent yeah. when you're in that realm. And I think really what it is is taking is that the people who have gotten out and gotten to the other side, it, it's time to go back and get the others and keep that cycle of you know, not leaving people stuck in it and trying everything you can to help the next group because it's a it's an ongoing issue. Right. Oh my gosh, that is just so profound and gives me the chills to hear that to go back and get the others that are still yeah. struggling. And that again, that's what I love about Family Court Awareness Month and in the website. If you go there, because they have all levels of involvement and they even break it down into levels. Like I just want to send emails. I just that I want to do more involved at this level. So it even breaks it down. You guys, you could it could just be you sitting with your laptop in bed at night, you know, and it's everything is already written out for you. It's completely turnkey, but it is raising awareness and it's getting these messages out and it's getting cities to acknowledge, you know, that the travesties and the shocking horrors that are happening in family court and just raising awareness. And so please go to the site and just see what you can do. It's big and small. Absolutely. You can be totally behind the scenes and communicate just with me or another um, representative from Family Court Awareness Month. You don't have to have your name tied to anything. Some people are just gathering information, gathering email addresses for other people to send to. Some people are really becoming empowered by the speaking, the standing in front of um, a group of people and sharing a little bit about their story. So there's there's definitely different levels and you can choose how involved you are, how much time you have, whether or not you want 
you know, your face or your name attached to anything, or if you just want to support quietly. Yeah. And yet we are making strides. And I wonder if you, because we alluded to it earlier with the work that you've done in your state, Maryland, and getting some laws passed and then chipping away at some things. And we recently had a fairly big win here in California. Could you tell people a little bit more about SB 331 in California and Peaky's Law? Because this is this is the kind of stuff that will happen if we just keep raising awareness and we keep talking about it, getting um, our voices up to the, the political, you know, lawmaking level. Pinky is a five-year-old boy who was murdered by his father after his mother told the family court system that he was going to be murdered by his father. You know, she fought very hard to keep him safe and she was unable to do so. And she has fought tirelessly since his death to try to bring reform to the California family court system. And after, I don't even know how many years, but finally, um, Peaky's law has has been passed. We're just waiting for the governor to sign it this week. And it will become law that court professionals have to have some training. Um, There's going to be restrictions on um, the use of reunification camps as a tool. And basically, it's putting some more child-focused practices into the family court system. Awesome. So I just want everyone to have incentive. These are the kinds of things that can happen, you know, if we mm-hmm. if we raise awareness and raise the noise level on this, because children like your daughters and little boys like Peaky, and I don't, do you even know the current number of how many children have been killed now by their no, I, abusive I mean, parents? I think it's, I think it's like 900 something. It's, it's, it's disgusting. Just, it's And disgusting. That's, that's the only, that's what's documented. That's not what's, and those are the children that have been murdered. Right. That's not talking about the children who are actively in the custody of their abuser. Right. Because there's as you know, a million horrific things that can happen, you know, and then, I mean, murder is unfathomable, but there are also many other unfathomable right. abuses happening. There's this so- whole realm, yeah, a range of, of abuse before you get to that point. Yes, and yes. People have such a hard time believing that someone would hurt their own child. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of resistance too. But when you are talking about an abuser who is losing control, they will do anything they can to hurt that victim and hurting the protective parent is all that matters. And what can you, you know, I mean, the most painful thing you can do is take their child. Absolutely. So they'll take them in the family court system. They'll hurt them. They will, I mean, they'll go to great lengths because that's, that's what they're focused on. Right. And I mean, obviously this community can understand it because how many times have we heard, you know, in high conflict, which is a joke that we call it that, right? Because it's really just one person causing all the conflict, but just going for sole custody after they, they they couldn't even tell you who the pediatrician is. It continues on for years and it's just, it's always the goal. Yeah. It, the goal forever for the abuser is, is to hurt the protective parent. And so this is the extreme version of it, but it happens. I'm going to say all the time. It does. Um, yeah. And again, the course, the cases that are being litigated in the family court system should already be identified that somebody is the problem. I'm really bothered by these kind of mass overviews that are just kind of placed on those cases, because I think each of them should be looked at in depth so that you can really see what's going on. Because again, two healthy parents, they figure it out, whether it's 50-50 or primary at one parent and the other parent has, if, if you're in family court, somebody is a problem. And so there shouldn't be this equal standing straight off the bat. Here's what we're going to do. There's just too much at stake. And, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people forget is it's not for 10 years or 18 years or whatever the length of the, just the childhood is, but you can't undo childhood trauma. 
you can't just fix it. And so, you know, the, the long-term impact of these decisions is, is massive. It affects the next generation. It affects the adults that come out into the world. You know, I mean, if you care about addiction, you should care about childhoods. And if you care about poverty, you should care about childhoods. I mean, basically, it all stems back to trauma. And yes. these family court decisions are causing more trauma than anything. And then you have people going out into the world that can't function. And it just starts a whole nother, a whole nother cycle. You know, people, they think it's not their problem because again, it's a domestic issue. It's a family issue or whatever the case may be. But you know, the, that kid is hanging out with your kid yeah. and when they get older and there's bigger problems, I mean, you know, the, the people that end up in a relationship with someone who's damaged and they're trying to help them because they had such a tough childhood, but now they're in an abusive relationship and they don't even recognize that. And it's just this constant. The cycle and the ripple effect okay. is, yeah, just, it goes on um, for infinity, unfortunately. So where and how can we stop it? And this is the way. And so I know I am eternally grateful for you because you have turned what you've been through, you know, into a champion, you know, advocacy for others. And that is just huge. And, and I also want to tell people too, on the familycourtawarenessmonth.org website, you there's a place to even tell your own story. We need to gather stories to raise awareness. And so you know, if anybody feels an urge to sort of share their Sometimes story. it's just a little clip. You don't even have to have your name put out there. Um, okay. You've seen Tina sometimes put out a, a quote from a judge, something that a judge said to someone in one of the cases. And having these words kind of pulled out and just put out there like that is pretty bold. And it really makes it stand out how absurd some of the things that are happening are. It seems like the focus is more on the parent who is trying to protect the child to just get along with the other parent. And how do you get along with somebody who's abusing your children, except that's what you're expected to do? That's what mm -hmm. I actually did. I have sat in Chuck E. Cheese across the table from my ex-husband while he gives my kids presents and I smile and act like everything's normal. And then I go home with those presents and my other kid helps me unload them from the car. Like this is a normal life. I, I, I told my lawyer once it felt like I was being um, sentenced to a lifetime of pain. Like when, when does it end? Absolutely. Even if he's not living here now, we have to interact with him all the time and share life with him. And it's just, where are the walls protecting these kids? We're giving parents and specifically abusive parents rights over mm -hmm. any child. It's unfortunately so many aspects now that I've become aware of. We are just putting our children in danger at so many turns. And, you know, this is just one of them and it's, it's shocking. Um, but again, that's why we raise awareness. Um, October is domestic violence awareness month. So it's appropriate. The family court awareness month is comes on the heels of that in November. And again, I really thank you for all of the work that you do and for coming on with me today and helping people understand the level of abuse that's going on from the court system to our mm -hmm. children and to their yeah, protective parents. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. And I just, it's going to take a lot of people working together and a lot of people talking about it before change really comes. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that so many people are, are starting to come forward and really work on this message. And hopefully we can, we can make a difference somewhere along the line and, uh, you know, save those others.
that we're Absolutely. So please go to familycourtawarenessmonth.org. See what you can do. Just even educate yourself at the very minimum on all of the things that are going on. And um, yeah, see if there's any level that you want to be involved or even share your story, as you mentioned. And then also, Annie Kenny, you are at bloomconsultingsolutions.com. So if you want to even read more about Annie and, and her practice and what she's doing, um, please go check that out as well. But again, thank you for coming on. I'm just constantly in awe of you and and I'm just, just happy to be in your presence. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, same here. Thank you so much. Okay. Hopefully we'll talk soon.